0: This is the History of the World podcast, with me, Chris Hasler. And you're listening to Volume 3, The Classical World. Episode 34, The Battle of Elysia. City of Alesia is situated in the modern Côte d'Or department of France. The south coast of France was colonised by travelling Greeks who founded the modern city of Marseille. Elsewhere in French lands we don't really have much in the way of written accounts of who was doing what before the period of the Roman expansion into these lands. There's no doubt that these lands would have had many agricultural settlements engaged in international trade with all of their European neighbours, both across land and sea. Now if we try to link what we have already discovered during this podcast series to the people of this area of modern France, then we should take a closer look at the Urnfield culture of Central Europe. We mentioned the Urnfield culture when summarising volume 2 during episode 37. The Urnfield culture was a Bronze Age culture who have been suggested to have spoken an early form of Celtic language and possibly an ancestor of the Italic languages of the pre-Roman Italian peninsula. As those descendants of the Urnfield culture who lived in Central Europe became expert metal workers, their culture would evolve into what is historically referred to as the Hallstatt culture. The people of this culture were tribal and their settlements were no more than small towns at most. Some of the tribes slowly migrated westwards towards the lands of the modern country of France and would evolve to become the Latin culture, which was somewhat contemporary to the rise of the Roman Republic. The Gauls were people who lived in the modern day country of France, and they are associated with this Latin culture, which is a Celtic culture. These people would touch those cultures of the Iberian Peninsula, and the amalgamation would be the Celtiberians of the lands of the modern country of Spain who were the ones who had to deal with the invasion of the Carthaginians during the 3rd century BCE the tribal chiefs continued to live in hilltop forts which was a favoured style of living for celtic chiefs of central europe for many centuries the emergence of the growing societies of the Mediterranean peninsulas would have provided good mercantile opportunities for those Gallic societies as they traded their surplus materials. The Gallic way of life was a successful one and much of the modern French lands began to embrace the Gallic culture. So it was very recognisable archaeologically in this region of France and Switzerland in particular, as well as the borderlands of adjacent modern countries such as Belgium and Germany, for example. So when the Romans started learning more about the lands of eastern France, they would have recognised a definitive culture that was abundant in the area, and this indeed was the Gallic culture. The Gauls. The area of Europe that we are talking about is defined by the Gauls during ancient times and this could be described as close to the heartlands of Gallic culture. It's probably going to help at this stage if we try to clarify some terminology. Middle Europe in ancient times was the heartland of the emergence of the Celts and the Celts are defined by a unique set of cultures and a unique set of languages. Those cultures that have evolved in these lands from the second millennium BCE that we mentioned earlier, such as the Urnfield culture and the Housestead culture and the Laten culture are all regarded as a progression of this Celtic diversification from other Indo-European branches of language and culture. Geographically, we can describe the heartlands of Celtic cultures as the Hungarian lands north of the Balkan Peninsula, reaching across the middle of Europe westwards across Austria and the Czech Republic, the southern lands of modern Germany, Switzerland and the eastern fringes of France. The Gauls could be described as those Celtic peoples of the latter half of the first millennium BCE who remained in these central lands, as we know that some Celtic-speaking cultures diversified into areas such as Iberia and the British Isles, for example. So describing people as Gauls or Gallic is somewhat synonymous with being Celtic, but it is somewhat exclusive to those Celtic cultures who started to flourish in the middle lands of Europe after the 5th century BCE. We have talked about the Gauls on many occasions, and despite them being less civilised than the Mediterranean societies, they were fearless, powerful, and successful, and were even migrating away from the Gallic heartlands. Some would migrate back eastwards, back into the lands of their ancient ancestors of the Urnfield culture, and they would have ambitions of plundering the riches of the Balkan states. Others would become interested in the wealth of the Italian Peninsula, crossing the Alps onto the borders of Etruscan societies. These were the Chisalpine Gauls, who were named by the people of the Italian Peninsula with the literal meaning on the near side of the Alps. This would be in opposition to the Transalpine Gauls, who were on the opposite side of the Alps, in the lands that are the subject of this week's podcast. The Gauls who invaded Rome in 390 BCE were described as Gauls who had come from the other side of the Alps, therefore Transalpine Gauls. So there would have been a well-known and distinct difference in the minds of the Italian Peninsula inhabitants between Chisalpine and Transalpine Gauls, with the Transalpine Gauls being much more mysterious. When these Gauls sacked Rome it would reverberate in the memories of Romans for centuries to come. Other Gallic societies would invade the lands of Thrace after the lifetime of Alexander the Great later on in the 4th century BCE and at the beginning of the 3rd century BCE. These Gallic people found an area of land near the Cappadocian lands of central Anatolia and this would become known as Galatia in honour of the Gauls. So despite their relatively uncivilised way of life, the Gauls were a power to be respected. The Gauls must have had an organised society during the pre-Roman period to have even been any kind of threat to the larger advanced societies of Europe and this would have been possible due to the wealth of trade opportunities available to the Gauls for those southern European societies requiring to deal with the Gauls. We can see the minting of coins in Celtic lands dating to this period however the Gauls were not solely interested in waiting for trade and were very happy to seek their own opportunities so the raids of the lands of the Balkan and Italian peninsulas was typical for the Gauls and their tribal instinct to seek more wealth through raid and plunder." Now before we go any further it is very important to note that the Roman view of Gallic people would have encompassed a great many subcultures and a great many tribes from a great many lands north of Italy. So we cannot talk about Rome versus the Gauls because the Gauls were not a united nation in the same sense as the Romans. Gallic tribes acted independently from each other, but may have formed coalitions if there was a common political cause to be fought for. The Roman Republic As we all very well know by now, Rome started out as a city-state ruled by monarchs, before the monarchy was overthrown at the end of the 6th century BCE and the Roman Senate elected consuls to take care of the affairs of the new Roman Republic. We know that the Romans had an ingrained history with the Etruscans who effectively came to control all of the lands around Rome before Rome's own imperial expansion. And we also have reports of Etruscan nobles actually holding important positions of office in Rome. Rome was a very modern city from an early time, with defensive walls to drainage systems and a presiding senate in control of political affairs. There was a clear influence from those classical cultures of the Greeks that was not felt directly by the much smaller agricultural settlements of the Gauls. However, we know that the early Romans were shocked by the first wave of Gauls who invaded the peninsula, sacking the city of Rome, at a time when the Romans were looking like one of the more powerful entities of the area. Instantly, the Romans improved the defensive walls around their city. They were determined to prevent another Gallic attack. As the 4th century BCE continued, the Romans would gain power and influence over their local area, bringing many Latin settlements under their direction. This would then become a platform for the Romans to further extend their area of influence within the Italian peninsula as the growth would continue. Roman roads and aqueducts would be built during the 4th century BCE by the Romans. One of the most prominent Gallic tribes who were involved in the sacking of Rome in 390 BCE were the Sinonis and it would be the Sinonis who would suffer at the hands of the Romans at the start of the 3rd century BCE, when the Romans were now quite a different prospect. The Sinonis likely originated from the lands around Elysia, and had been present in northern Italy since they helped to sack Rome, but now the Romans would expel the Sinonis completely from the Italian peninsula. Much of the rest of the 3rd century BCE saw the Romans preoccupied with the Punic wars in the lands and the waters to their south. But they did have to deal with another Gallic incursion into the Italian lands of the modern region of Tuscany in 225 BCE, where the Romans would defeat them at the Battle of Telamon. The Romans would push northwards and take the Celtic settlement of Milan in 222 BCE, which the Romans would have called Mediolanum. It would not be long before the Carthaginian commander Hannibal Barker would venture across the lands of Liguria en route to Roman lands, assisted and opposed by various Celtic tribes dependent on where the particular tribe would consider its loyalty best place. And so the Romans would therefore become preoccupied with Punic conflicts yet again. From this point on the Roman attention would be better documented in their campaigns southwards and eastwards as they would slowly create a Mediterranean empire with there being no further evidence of major Gallic incursions of the Roman northern borders again. As we have already discovered, the Roman Republic would be subject to growing tensions between the two main political parties of the Republic in the late 2nd century BCE and the early 1st century BCE. Julius Caesar The Populares, were a political party of Rome who looked to support the wider range of citizens of the Roman Republic, in opposition to the Optimates, who were a conservative faction seeking to uphold the capitalistic traditions of the Republic. The first notable popularis politicians were the Gracchi brothers, who were effectively bullied out of any kind of position of influence by supporters of the Optimates. The next major historical figure associated with the popularis was Gaius Marius. Marius was married to a woman called Iulia, whose brother was the father of Gaius Iulius Kaiser, who we know as Julius Caesar. Marius would gain power in Rome during the 80s BCE, while his rival, the optimate politician Sulla, was campaigning in Asia Minor. This would be a time of dominance for the Popularis under Marius who would ensure that his ally, Lucius Cornelius Cinna, was elected as the Consul of Rome on four consecutive terms. One of Cinna's daughters, named Cornelia, married Julius Caesar. However, Sulla would return to Rome and run the Marians, out, creating a new period of dominance for the Optimates. Julius Caesar would have to go into hiding in Bithynia in northern Anatolia and he would have to stay there until Sulla's death in 78 BCE. It could have been by now that Caesar was thinking more ambitiously about his own personal destiny within the legacy of the Roman Republic Entering into the 60s BCE and Julius Caesar had become an important politician of the Roman Republic. Caesar was somewhat charismatic and flamboyant, untrustworthy but attractive. It may have been these qualities that allowed Caesar to rise to positions of importance in the Roman Republic despite his political persuasion. The Roman statesman Marcus Tullius Cicero, commonly known in modern circles as Cicero, was one of the men who believed that Caesar's intentions were purely based on his own personal hunger for power. Caesar would certainly step in when the Roman Senate was at risk of falling apart due to there being so much tension within its ranks. He would form a personal alliance with the two optimate politicians, Pompey, and Crassus, just to restore some kind of authority to the Senate. This alliance would apportion responsibilities to itself. Crassus would be responsible for Roman politics in Asiatic lands. Pompey would be responsible for the politics of Hispania. Caesar himself would become responsible for Cisalpine Gaul, and in time, Transalpine Gaul which would lead him towards the lands of this episode's battle. Vircingetorix One of the more dominant tribes of Transalpine Gaul were the Arverni. The Arverni hailed from the region of the Seyvene, The Seven mountains were a great leveller to the Roman armies who ventured into Gallic lands but towards the end of the 2nd century BCE the Romans were becoming somewhat irresistible and the Romans started gaining influence in this area. The Arverni were forced into a type of peace treaty where they would have to surrender lands to preserve their independence by the time of Julius Caesar's instalment as the proconsul of the Roman Republic, Caesar would have to justify his lavish lifestyle. Caesar would be granted the governorship over those transalpine Gallic lands that the Romans had control over. The trade health of Gallic societies would have been somewhat attractive to Caesar, and if he could subjugate all of the Gallic tribes, then he would have significant access to the wealth of these lands. The Arverni would have watched while Caesar's armies campaigned throughout the lands of the modern countries of Switzerland, France, Belgium, and England. Julius Caesar led the Roman army to victory over many Gallic tribes, so much so that the Gallic tribes had to open up lines of communication to determine whether they should pull their resources to deal with the Roman problem. After Crassus' death at the Battle of Carrhae in 53 BCE, something we discussed in detail last week, the first triumvirate was over and large cracks were starting to appear in the relationship between Pompey and Caesar. Caesar would be somewhat distracted by politics in Rome and while he was a man called vercingetorix came to power as the leader of the gallic tribe called the arverni and set about trying to create a gallic coalition to stand up against julius caesar's roman army in unison vercingetorix's intentions were viewed as highly ambitious by other gallic nobles but ultimately the choice was to stand up against caesar all become subjects of the Roman Republic, likely to have no rights within the Republic with many individuals consigned to the Roman slave class. The most important fortified settlement of the Gauls were not really fit to be classed as cities, so we call them Celtic oppida. One of the Opida was Gorgobina, and this was a settlement which many of Caesar's legions were living in in winter residence, Vercingetorix would target this oppidum for a siege in order to starve out the Roman legionaries, but Caesar anticipated this and ordered his army to evacuate the town before the siege could take place. Vercingetorix would set up base camp at the capital oppidum of the Gallic tribe called the Bituriges Cubi, and this settlement was called Avaricum. Prelude to the battle. It was 52 BCE, and Julius Caesar was heading back into Gallic lands to finish off the job he'd started before the distractions of the political crisis in Rome. His first objective was to link up with his legionaries already in Gaul. Avaricum is the modern French city of Bourges and this would be caesar's first target on his return to Gaul Vercingetorix advised the biturigi's cubi to destroy their villages including the oppidum of avaricum but they refused forcing Vercingetorix into plan b which was to garrison avaricum instead the romans besieged avaricum in a fascinating battle of wits, with the Romans attempting to build mounds around the city and the Gallic miners attempting to compromise the earth underneath the mounds. And this was just one example. Vercingetorix and Caesar tried to patiently outwit each other for almost a month before Vercingetorix decided that the Gauls needed to break out by force, which prompted Caesar to overrun. The Oppidum. Vercingetorix fled and the residents at Avaricum were massacred. Caesar and the Romans pursued Vercingetorix to the Oppidum of Gergovia. The Romans would be double crossed by their Gallic allies, the Idwi, and this would buy Vercingetorix enough time to be able to organise a cavalry offensive that would result in a rare victory for the Gauls at what would become known as the Battle of Gergovia. Caesar ordered a retreat of the Roman legions and it would now be Virgin time to pursue the Romans, in a bid to chase them down and destroy them once and for all. Caesar retired back to Transalpine Gaul and rebuilt his forces and Vercingetorix decided to organize a new coalition of Gallic forces to take on Caesar. Caesar re-entered Transalpine Gaul and Vercingetorix attempted to attack the Romans again, but the Romans resisted and Vercingetorix was forced to retreat. And this is when the oppidum of Alesia was chosen to be the stronghold of the Gauls, where Vercingetorix would hopefully regroup again. However Caesar knew that he had to seize the initiative and followed Vercingetorix to Elysia. It was a race against time, as Vercingetorix had sent for reinforcements from his Gallic allies and it was vital that they arrived at Elysia before Caesar and the Romans. At the time, Vercingetorix's garrisoned army at Elysia was thought to have numbered at around 80,000. Elysia was deliberately chosen due to its geographical situation on high ground, flanked by two rivers. This has led historians to believe that the true modern-day location of Elysia may be the modern commune of Alice Saint Vercingetorix dug trenches and erected a defensive wall around the Oppidum. Caesar arrived at Alesia before any further Gallic reinforcements could arrive to support Vercingetorix, and the Romans surrounded the settlement with constructed castra from which the Romans could attack any Gauls attempting to take action. Outside the Oppidum itself. Caesar would then construct walls to hem the Gauls in and keep any further Gallic reinforcements out. The Battle of Elysia Caesar had effectively created a ring around Elysia, and his entire army was contained between the two walls which totally isolated Alesia, But this wasn't necessarily a huge problem initially for Vercingetorix. With 80,000 soldiers, Vercingetorix may have felt confident that if Gallic reinforcements didn't arrive, then he could potentially take the offensive to the Romans anyway. From Caesar's perspective, he had isolated Alesia by building a wall around the oppidum, and he had effectively hemmed himself in by building a wall to keep the Gallic reinforcements out. So he had put his own army in a defensible construction. Eventually, Gallic reinforcements did arrive at Elysia with plenty of cavalry, but if we think back to our last battle episode which was about the Battle of Cari, which took place in the previous year we learned that Crassus's son who had taken part in the earlier Gallic war campaigns alongside Julius Caesar had taken a concession of Gallic horsemen with him. This is because some of the Gallic tribes were aligned with the Romans as in their own minds it suited them and also because Caesar had subjugated them already. Therefore, the initial exchanges at Elysia pitted Gallic cavalry against Gallic cavalry. Some Gallic cavalry was loyal to the Romans, while the others were loyal to the Gallic rebellion. The rebel reinforcements stood off from the Romans while the two sets of cavalry engaged with each other. But whenever the Romans pushed the rebels back, the rebels would deploy their archers, resulting in the Romans retreating back to their fortifications in a bit of a stalemate. Caesar's next move was quite clever. He would send his cavalry to higher ground and attack the rebel reinforcements from there. And this would mean that the archers were far less effective the Romans would create an advantage and nullify the rebel cavalry and archers. Night fell and battle was suspended. The following day, the Gallic rebel reinforcements approached the Romans again. But this time, Virginetorix advanced from the interior of the Roman fortifications at the same time. The man, who was central to the defence of the Roman position was a young Roman commander called Marcus Antonius, often known as Mark Antony. They spent a long and hard afternoon defending themselves from both sides, but defend themselves they did. The next day and the tactics changed again. This time, instead of concentrating their engagement with the Romans in just one area of the Roman fortifications, the Gallic rebel reinforcements attacked at various places around the circumference of the Roman walls, causing the Romans to scurry around, defending the most vulnerable positions as the day went on. When Vercingetorix realised that the Romans were being thinned out within their walls, he would attack from the interior. So now the Romans were tracked, and to make matters worse, the Gallic rebel reinforcements had finally managed to breach the Roman external wall. Caesar commanded all of his men to head towards the breach to prevent the Gauls from completing a massacre of all of the Romans. The Romans were able to hold off the Gauls long enough for enough of them to scale their own walls and escape to the outside. This was a critical moment because it would mean that the Romans could attack those Gauls who had breached the Roman wall from behind. This would cause panic amongst the Gauls who dispersed, and therefore this took the pressure off of the Romans. The dispersal of the reinforcements was an absolute disaster for Vercingetorix, who was dependent on their successful arrival in order to lift the siege. Without relief, the vast Gallic army who had originally garrisoned Alesia were fast running out of resources, and the people of Alesia could no longer rely on Vercingetorix to provide them with answers. The Gallic commanders agreed to surrender to Caesar and the Romans and Vercingetorix was handed over to Caesar as a prisoner of war. The Battle of Elysia was over and Vercingetorix had been defeated. Aftermath Virginetorix was taken back to Rome in chains. Caesar's accomplishments in Gaul were celebrated to the same levels as a religious festival. The successful siege of Elysia was a major blow for the Gauls and they would never really be able to recover from it. Any rebellion against the Romans from now on would really be in vain and Caesar just needed to consolidate his position in Gaul to be able to give the Roman Senate the opportunity to officially make it a province of the wider imperial entity of the Roman Republic. With Crassus now dead, the first triumvirate had fallen apart long before the Battle of Elysia. With Caesar receiving the adulation of the Roman citizens, the pressure was becoming too much for his former political ally, Pompey. Caesar and Pompey had always stood on opposite sides of the political spectrum, but found a common cause before the Gallic Wars to hold the Roman Republic together. Now, the agenda was entirely different. Caesar was now a very dangerous influence to the Optimates, of which Pompey was one. Pompey had gained influence over the Roman Senate and he demanded that Caesar disband his army. Caesar knew exactly what was going on. This was a clear attempt to undermine Caesar's influence as a political figure and Caesar had absolutely no interest in disappearing into political obscurity. Caesar led his army over the Rubicon River, and Rome was now in a civil war. Rome would be split between those optimate supporters with Pompey as their figurehead and the popularis with Caesar as theirs. Civil war would engulf the Roman Republic for the next four years until Pompey fled to Egypt, where he would be murdered on his arrival. Caesar was now appointed the dictator of the Roman Republic and part of his celebrations would be to take Vercingetorix out of imprisonment, parade him as part of a celebration of Caesar's success, and then publicly grot him. This was the long overdue end of Vercingetorix in 45 BCE, over six years after the Battle of Elysia. Things would not last much longer for Caesar himself though, Caesar had an appetite for expanding the influence of the Republic and he indeed made his mark. His next ambition was to follow in the footsteps of his triumvirate allies Pompey and Crassus and lead an expedition into Asiatic lands, particularly against the Parthians. However, he would never realise his ambition due to the fact that he was brutally murdered by a group of conspirators in 44 B.C.E., so once again another battle episode comes to an end, and uh, two of these battle episodes are never the same, are they? It's always a different story with these battles. Always something unique about them all. This one is incredible. The fact that the Romans built a wall around this, uh, around a town. And then built another wall around their wall, and ended up in a in a ring. And that somehow they managed to win the battle. It's quite incredible when um, some of the numbers that have bandied backwards and forwards about the amount of um, the amount of reinforcements, the Gallic reinforcements that turned up. You know, some some sources uh, talk about hundreds of thousands of people, and, and you just. It's hard to know what the truth is, but uh, nonetheless, it's still a really interesting story. So thank you so much for listening to this week's story. And um, it's uh, nice to find out a little bit more about Julius Caesar's uh, escapades. So brilliant uh, battle episode. Let's read out some listener messages now. Uh, First one we've got is from Luke Patterson. It put, dear Chris, I am a history graduate and thoroughly enjoy listening to your podcast. I'm currently on volume two. Do keep up the exceptional work with this. So I feel it is pitched just right and is a comprehensive chronicle of history. However, I had one th- query during the ancient podcast of volume two. I noticed you included the Kushite civilization during the ancient Egyptian series, but they were not covered in their own right. I know that you are currently up to the Roman period, which I can't wait to get up to. Is there any way of producing a special series covering the Nubians in their own right? Also, are there any other prominent African civilizations except for Egypt, Nubia, Kush, and Carthage during ancient times? Kind regards, Luke Patterson. Um, well, yeah, I mean, a lot of the places that we are not sort of specialising episodes in, they would have have remained somewhat tribal. But of course, they would have had their own cultures, but it would take far too long to go into all of them. And and for some of them, we've got very limited information, only sort of um, external reports of them. Um, But I think um, certainly in Volume 4, we're going to be looking more closely at um, developments in uh, the lands of Nigeria, um Zimbabwe, for example. Um as for the uh as for the Nubians, Kushites, uh Aksumites, uh, that sort of area, the, the Upper Nile cultures, um you know, that is something that interests me. Um I didn't make a, a dedicated episode but I'd always be interested to hear from the uh from the History of the World podcast listening public about your opinion. So, if if you do want such an episode, then please do let me know. I I am sort of um quite happy to be driven by, uh, by popular demand. So, if if there is any uh, interest in that, um, drop me a line and let me know. But thanks for the message, Luke. Uh, moving on. Simon Gleave has put Chris excellent work. I've been listening now for a few weeks, and I'm seriously impressed by your scholarship. I live in Beijing. And listen to your podcast while commuting or at home. Great work. I look forward to more episodes. I'm not... I do you know, I can't recall if we've had uh, anyone write in from China before. Um, and that could be a first. Uh, but so thank you so much, Simon. Um, and it's great to hear that you've, uh, you've written in from China. There's obviously so much rich history and culture to do with China. So, and... um you know, we will get round to that in uh, so later on in Volume Three, maybe, maybe in uh, episode fifties or sixties, something like that. Uh, but thank you, Simon. Um, and then um, we've got one from Ralph, who's put. Um, I listened to your podcast of Origin of the Egyptians and Pre-Dynastic Egypt on the YouTube channel, The Study of Antiquity in the Middle Ages. Uh, please spell the for me the name of the lost capital city of Egypt that sounded to me like Phenis or Phenis or Phenis or Phenis or Venice or Phenis, Phenis. I don't. Know. I appreciate your work and time. I'm just not familiar with that place name. No, that doesn't look like it. He's, he's tried to spell it six times. It's actually Thinis. Thinis is the lost capital city of um, of early. Egypt. Uh, It's spelled T H I N I S. Thinis. Um, It's great that you've um, you've responded so quickly to um, the study of antiquity in the Middle Ages. Have actually, yes, turned um, the episode on pre-dynastic Egypt into a video, and um, you can access all the uh, History of the World podcast. Video versions of episodes um, by going to the interact section on the history of the world website and clicking YouTube, you've got um, you will access a playlist of history of the world podcast videos that have been kindly made by Nick Barksdale of the Study of Antiquity in the Middle Ages, a very, very popular history channel on YouTube. Um, should you go to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website, you will also find the Patreon link there, which is always uh, hugely helpful uh, if you visit the Patreon link and sign up to make a monthly contribution. And when you sign up to make a monthly contribution, you will become a lifelong member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati, as has uh, Real Avi, Riel Avi, has become a member of the History World Podcast Illuminati this week. Um, when you accumulate um, particular um, particular amounts of donations over any length of time, um, you qualify for uh, small perks that we give out as a podcast. Um, we answer questions and we sort of allow you to pose questions and get them answered on a, on an episode. Um, we send out gift packs um as well. So um the I'll tell you what I've had to do, I've had to order some more gifts. I've run out of gifts, so I'm gonna to have to get some more in for those people who've qualified. Um the uh you know, if you if you're very good, um you can even commission an episode on the subject of your choice. We've done that before. We've done the House of Vassa, um uh, which was a great um house of the Swedish royal family um, from um, the sort of after the medieval times in the early imperial um, age Uh, we also done the Picts which were a Celtic um, peoples of the British Isles particularly Scotland Um, we did an episode on them which is quite quite interesting considering we've uh, covered a lot of Celtic stuff in today's Episode as well, so uh, don't forget. Um, if you um, if you do make a monthly contribution, you can qualify for rewards, and, and it really does help the podcast. Helps to invest in materials, um, you know, which enhance the content of the podcast. It, I can buy literature, that kind of thing. So, um, otherwise, um, if you uh, if you can't stretch to making any financial contribution, that's absolutely fine. Please. Feel free to continue to enjoy this free podcast. It will always be free. Um, and uh, rate and review it if you can do nothing else. That really does help to uh, maximize exposure um, to in the public domain of this podcast. Just rate and review. Push us up the charts of the chosen podcast publisher, and uh, we'll get more listeners and hopefully more contributions. Uh, So finally, reviews, reviews that have been given to the podcast. Uh, One we've got from Joe444555, who's put, love this podcast. Joe's from uh, the United States of America, by the way. Uh, He's put, love this podcast. I'm new to podcasts and I love this one. History always went through one ear and out the other at school. I always feel like a deer in the headlights when history arises in conversation. I've always felt I had a lack of context in the society around me. Enter Chris with this outstanding podcast, very easy to listen to. Maps on the website are very helpful and really gives me an opportunity to learn things that I should probably already know. Enjoy the podcast a lot, Chris. Please keep going. It must be a lot of work to put the programmes together. Thank you. Uh, well, it's a pleasure to put the programmes together, I'll be honest with you. But um, also the other thing is I think, yes, I think if history isn't taught well, it can be very boring, you know, if you if you don't, Understand the context, or you don't, there's no depth to the characters and to the scenarios, it can be extremely boring. So, I think um, a lot of history is to do with um, inspiring people's imaginations, and it, you've got to be a good raconteur, I think, to be a good history teacher. Um, Sim, Simon Edwards, 16, has um, given us a five star review from the USA, who's put great, listen. I love watching the podcast. Um, Well, that's almost a little bit bizarre, that one. I love watching the podcast. Perhaps he means on on the YouTube channel. Perhaps he means on the Study of Antiquity in the Middle Ages. Who knows? Um, But anyway, thank you for the five-star review, Simon Edwards. Very, very valuable indeed. Well, uh, I think that's going to be it for this week. We're going to wrap up now. Um, Next week... It's another battle episode, we're going to be looking over in the Asiatic lands again, we're going to be looking at the Battle of Zella, um, which um, is uh, between uh, the Romans and the Kingdom of Pontus, uh, which we've spoken very little about, so we're going to learn a little bit more about that Anatolian society, or that Anatolian Kingdom I should say. Um, next week we're going to be looking at more Julius Caesar and a bit more of the Asiatic lands. So um, that's going to be very interesting once again. Um, And uh, that's it for this week. So we're going to move on and uh, we'll hook up again in another seven days. But until that time, don't forget to be good. Do you want more from the History of the World podcast? Then visit our website, historyoftheworldpodcast.com. You can join our discussion forum and find us on social media. Support the podcast for as little as $1 per month by clicking the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. The best ones will be read out. Be sure to rate and review the show wherever you listen to us.